Thank you so much, Professor Herman. It's uh, a great pleasure to be back here again uh, in Mershon and the OSU. Uh, I have great memories from 1997-98 when I spent a sabbatical year here. Um, I'll give you an overall view of the um, nuclear uh, crisis between uh, Iran and I would say the West in general and uh, the United States in particular. And um, then we'll open that up to uh, a Q&A uh, session and hopefully we'll try to explore the nuances beyond the media on that question. Um, the Iranian nuclear program began in 1975. Uh, the um, Stan Stanford Research Center uh, Institute first uh, um, acknowledged that Iran uh, needs a nuclear program uh, because the country was developing at that time rapidly. And uh, the Iranian population was also growing at a high pace. So a, um, an American research institute first then uh, initiated the process of, um, uh, of a uh, nuclear program in Iran. And then the French and British companies uh, came to Iran uh, in 1976 to pursue the project for a 20,000 megawatt nuclear power plant in Iran. Um, right before that, in 1968, Iran had already signed the NPT, uh, the Non-Proliferation Treaty. And in 1970, uh, the Iranian government, and this is all under the Shah's period, uh, had ratified the NPT in the Iranian parliament. Now, uh, when the revolution occurred in 1979, the British and the French companies left Iran. And uh, there was also um, uh, a Japanese company in uh, Isfahan uh, that uh, had begun almost uh, a year uh, in 1978 uh, to the, uh, the initial processes of enrichment and they also left in 1979, 1980. Uh, after that, uh, Iran had a long war with Iraq from 1980 to 1988. About the end of the war, uh, Iran entered an agreement with the Chinese and the Russians to restart the nuclear program. Uh, the Chinese settled in Isfahan uh, and the Russians settled in southwest of Iran, uh, beginning a, um, uh, a nuclear uh, reactor in, in the south of the country. Uh, from time to time in the 1990s, you would hear um, from American government officials and more so from Israeli officials that uh, Iran is pursuing uh, a secret uh, nuclear weapons program. Uh, but nothing uh, was surfaced as a crisis between the two sides, between Iran and the United States or Iran and Israel. Uh, both sides um, considered that this will take a very long time for Iran to be able to um, 
fulfilled the enrichment process, the uranium enrichment process, let alone the weapons um, uh, program. Uh, I should perhaps uh, set this premise at the very beginning that in strategic studies, as far as I know, no distinction is made between the civilian nuclear program and the weapons uh, program because the distance is a uh, question of months for any country. For example, Germany uh, can shift to a weapons program in a matter of four months. The Japanese probably much less in three months. They can produce uh, nuclear weapons. So any country that has the technical capability to, pr- to have a nuclear reactor um, is presumed to be able to produce nuclear weapons if uh, it has the intention or it has um, um, the need for it. So I think um, uh, one of the paradoxes, perhaps, that the Iranian government has not understood at the international level is that no distinction, though no distinction can be made between a nuclear civilian nuclear program which Iran calls the peaceful program for technical scientific uh, reasons and the nuclear weapons program. Um, in two th- the crisis between the two sides began in um, uh, September 2002 when, um, when the International Atomic Energy um, uh, uh, Agency in Vienna Uh, declared that um, Iranian enrichment program is way beyond uh, 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 the necessity for having a nuclear reactor. This is way beyond what what Iran really is required to do. And that kind of created suspicions that Iran is uh, pursuing a weapons program, although Technically, the country is far away from becoming even a civilian nuclear power. Then, um, from that time, Iran has entered a series of negotiations uh, with uh, uh, the uh, international, with the IAEA uh, first, and then with uh, three European countries: the Great Britain, uh, France, and Germany to be able to settle this issue or, as they say, to, uh, to have confidence-building measures between Iran and the international community on Iran's nuclear program. Um, my, my second premise is that um, the, the, the basic problem between Iran and the U.S., Israel, the Europeans, and the IAEA uh, is not really a problem of uh, uh, a technical problem or a legal problem or an institutional problem. The premise is a political problem uh, between the two sides. Um, Iran and Iranians, we can say, uh, from a cultural point of view, uh, are not isolated. Uh, from an economic point of view, Iran is not isolated. From a commercial point of view, Iran is not isolated either. But from a security perspective, Iran is an isolated country. Uh, Because Iran is isolated from a security perspective, its leadership focuses 
uh, internally to uh, provide guarantees for its national security, for its territorial integrity, and the political and the social order that uh, uh, Iran has been able to create. Um, I think one of the interesting um, uh, correlations to understand Iran is to compare Iran with China. Iran and China are two countries that were humiliated in the 19th and the 20th centuries by foreign intervention. Both countries had revolutions, and both countries were able to initially consolidate themselves internally. The Chinese chose an economic paradigm to be able to develop, and to be able to develop the Chinese understood that they have to reach an accommodation with the United States. Those are two elements that Iran has not been able to achieve. Iranian political system is basically a security system. It is not an economic entity. Iranian, uh, Iranian leadership um, does not pursue an economic purpose in statecraft. Uh, still, Iran, after a quarter of a century, is a security phenomenon rather than an economic phenomenon right like Turkey, Malaysia, Singapore, South Korea, and emerging China. So I think um, that creates many uh, uh, limitations in the way Iran interacts with the rest of the world. Uh, Iran today is run by first-generation revolutionaries. Um, for those of you who um, know about China, uh, I can also make that comparison that Iran of today has, has not had the opportunity to have someone like uh, Chu Enlai, for those of you who, who know Chinese history, or Deng Xiaoping of China, someone who understands the dynamics of, um, of economic development and the political necessities to engage in economic development and the international setting to, uh, to promote economic and political development at home. Uh, still, the Iranian leadership uh, is pursuing, at the very top, revolutionary ideals. Having said that, the Iranian society has moved in a very different direction. Iranian society is not a revolutionary society, for the most part, whereas the Iranian leadership, the core leadership, is still revolutionary. And then another point that makes quite a bit of um, uh, complications in the Iranian foreign policy behavior is that in the 1980s, the first decade of the Iranian revolution, Iran was an offensive revolutionary power. All revolutionaries uh, and all revolutions try to uh, promote uh, their ideas beyond their borders and, their, and beyond their territories. Today, Iran is not an offensive revolutionary country. It is a defensive revolutionary country. It is trying to maintain uh, its political order. I would, always, um, I would also say that uh, Iranian political system is a status quo system. Uh, perhaps you've heard that Iran is very influential in Iraq. Iran is uh, very influential in Afghanistan, in the Persian Gulf, uh, in Lebanon, uh, Iran is influential in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict uh, and many other issues and countries in the region. 
it seems to me that all of that leverage that Iran now holds within the Middle East and Central Asian region, um, these are all bargaining chips vis-à-vis uh, the United States. These are all elements of, um, of, a, of an Iranian containment strategy to maintain itself and to maintain its uh, political and social order. So, um, having said that, I think uh, there is a problem of confidence, there is a problem of trust, there is a problem of, uh, as uh, the IAEA would say, uh, a deficit of, uh, of uh, trust and confidence between Iran and uh, the rest of the uh, Western world and the international community. Uh, so, there is a dilemma of trust. You've heard perhaps not too long ago, if you... Uh, a month and a half ago, the U.S. and India engaged um, in uh, negotiations for the United States to help India uh, uh, to develop its nuclear facilities further. India is not a member of the MPT. They have not signed it. They do have, the, uh, nuclear, um, uh, they do have a nuclear weapons program, but it's still the U.S. feels confident to um, have a nuclear program with the, uh, uh, with the Indians. Pakistan is a military dictatorship. They have a nuclear weapons program. So why Iran cannot have a nuclear, civilian nuclear program while two neighbors of Iran have even nuclear weapons program? I think the, the distinction here is, has to do with the fact that Iranian political system an Iranian security decision-making process. These are not known phenomena for the Western world, Europeans or Americans in general. So that raises quite a bit of suspicions about Iranian intentions. You know, uh, in this issue of nuclear uh, program, there is a distinction between capabilities and intentions. If Iran... If a country wants to become a member of a nuclear club, both their capabilities and intentions need to be transparent. Iranian capabilities are clear now, but Iranian intentions to the uh, Europeans and the Americans are not clear. Um, and then we have another complicating element too. Um, from time to time, we have heard uh, leaders of Iran, officials of Iran, uh, making statements about um, Israel. And, um, of course, um, uh, if Israel has problems with its neighbors, with Iran and many other countries in the region, Israel is part of the Western um, uh, European, North uh, American uh, political territory. Therefore, Israel, uh, because of its strategic relations with the Western world, um, there is a commonality of purpose, intention, and approach to the, um, to the Iranian nuclear program. So that raises quite a bit of problems between the two sides. So <clears throat> um, if Iran uh, is pursuing a nuclear program and um, it is constantly talking about regional threats of Israel and others in the region, then there is a gap between uh, its intentions and its capability. And that's why um, 
the Iranian uh, nuclear program and the Iranian missile program, which is another parallel element that complicates uh, this whole issue because Iran has a missile uh, program that can reach something close to 1,500 kilometers uh, from its borders. Um, so, so the political element of the nuclear crisis is very uh, serious and deep in the way it has evolved uh, in the last uh, especially three, four years. Now, Iran persists on its rights, uh, according to the MPT, to uh, have civilian nuclear program. That's not an element that the IAEA or the EU3, meaning uh, France, Germany, and uh, Britain, they're not denying that right to Iran, but they're saying that your nuclear program should confine itself to the uh, technical necessities of, uh, of uh, pursuing uh, a number of reactors in the country. Uh, again, because uh, many elements of the nuclear program in Iran, despite intensive uh, inspections by the IEA, are not clear to the West, therefore there is this um, ongoing crisis that, is, uh, that has now been surfaced between the two sides. Now, um, from an Iranian national perspective, I should point out that in year 2018, not too long uh, from now, Iran will be a country of 100 million people. Iranian population today is 70 million people. And it will reach 100 million by year 2018. 71% of the current Iranian population is below the age of 30. So that's a huge young population in search of employment uh, uh, and stability and job opportunities and, um, and uh, social welfare. Um, Iran, though, is the third uh, exporter of petroleum in the world, but half of its production is consumed internally. So... Um, from an economic and a technical point of view, some of the uh, 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 experts on the nuclear issue in Iran and many, some economists would argue that it is better for Iran to diversify its energy resources. Uh, although Iran has natural gas, for the next 320 years at the current level of consumption and exports, but they say that it is um, useful for Iran to be able to diversify its uh, uh, energy resources. So there is an argument, a sound argument, for Iran to be able to have the nuclear program. But the problem is that uh, Iranian foreign policy orientation and the nature of its elite structure and uh, its rhetoric in foreign policy have complicated uh, the pursuit of a nuclear program in Iran. Now, those uh, latter elements are not going to be changed so soon, although the Iranian revolution is going through its evolutionary process, and I presume that not too long from now, Iran is going to enter a stage where uh, the second-generation revolutionaries in Iran will take over. Uh, the whole issue of nationalism in Iran is also uh, 
uh, surging and becoming an important element in Iranian uh, national development and also Iranian uh, foreign policy orientation. So, um, so here we have a dichotomy, a foreign policy that is rhetorical, revolutionary, and ideological, but a national economic policy that is forward-looking, modernizing, and wants to open up to the rest of the world. Um, as some of you may know that in the developing world, it is not just possible to pursue a, uh, a, a revolutionary foreign policy and at the same time have uh, a, a modernization program for the country. A far, the foreign policy of a country needs to be accommodative, needs to be um, um, uh, uh, kind of uh, forward-looking, uh, being part of the international community so that uh, economic benefits, the in integration processes, and the globalization processes can be built upon. So I think that is the root of the problem. Um, of course, uh, we need to uh, differentiate between the kinds of concerns that the Europeans have with Iran and the kinds of issues that the U.S. has with Iran. The two countries, Iran and the U.S., do not have official relations. Um, it has been uh, a relationship of hostility and distrust over the last 27 years between the two countries. And because there are no relations, and the Iranian rhetoric about the U.S. and the American rhetoric on Iran continue on both sides. Iran has called the U.S. the great Satan, and the U.S. has called Iran an axis of evil country. So the, the religious uh, terminology uh, in the ideological uh, dialogue between the two countries uh, continue. So <clears throat> uh, a number of scenarios in my closing here uh, can be uh, envisaged. First is that Iran will agree, the first scenario, is that Iran will agree to a long-term suspension of the enrichment program. That is, according to Western demands, at, at least a decade. Iran will agree that for the next 10 years will not engage in the enrichment of uranium in its nuclear facilities. Why 10 years? There is a political dimension to that because uh, the West in general thinks that in the next 10 years there is a high possibility that there will be political changes in Iran. The top leadership is aging, uh, <clears throat> 70 and on, so that there will be big changes in Iran in the coming decade. Hopefully, if the political orientation of Iran changes, then uh, the West would feel comfortable having Iran um, uh, pursue the nuclear alternative. If that happens, if Iran agrees to uh, a decade uh, enrichment uh, suspension, then uh, I think uh, there are many opportunities and there is a lot of hope that this military talk and the military attack on Iran and the military uh, a solution to the nuclear crisis between the two countries uh, might kind of appease. <clears throat> Another scenario is that uh, Iran will not accept uh, the time period that the U.S. and the Europeans are asking. 
Iran now is talking about two years, at least at maximum two years of suspension, so that in the meantime, Iran will engage in confidence-building measures with the Europeans and the IAEA and, the, and indirectly with the United States, so that uh, during this period, some kind of objective guarantees can be um, uh, drawn between the two sides so that the nuclear program uh, can move forward after two years. Now, I think as far as I know, uh, the U.S. has a clear policy of not negotiating with Iran on the nuclear issue. Um, we can perhaps use this uh, word and say that the U.S. government has now outsourced its Iran nuclear policy to the Europeans. And, uh, and it is not uh, accepting to uh, negotiate directly with the Iranian government for many very complex, I would say, psychological, political, and historical reasons. Um, now, if, if Iran persists on, on the two-year uh, suspension, I think we are going to have a big crisis. Uh, because um, the Bush administration will be around for the next three years, and um, the French, uh, current French government is going to be around for a couple of years. We now have a new German government. The British government will be around for a few years too. So, so um, none of them will agree that during their tenure, Iran... Uh, um, uh, will complete the two years uh, so that it can begin uh, the enrichment program vigorously. So I think there we're going to have a major crisis. Now, if that is going to turn into a military stage, I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of talk. I don't think uh, the U.S. has made a firm decision on that. Uh, but I believe that um, um, if... Um, if there, is a, uh, if there is no hope in the discussions and the negotiations between the EU3 and Iran and the IAEA and Iran, uh, the military solution um, uh, might become activated. Uh, that's in the next uh, two, three years. Uh, so that, there is a possibility there, but nobody really knows. It would all depend on domestic American politics. It will depend how the Iraqi situation is proceeding, uh, whether the U.S. Is, uh, 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 is interested to open another war front uh, with Iran. And perhaps I can also add that if um, the U.S. Uh, attacks Iran, uh, and that will be surgical attacks perhaps in a few, over a few nights, um, then that will be a war between the two countries. Um, uh, some people have talked of an Israeli attack on Iran. Uh, I've heard that the Israelis are not capable technically to carry out these surgical attacks on Iran uh, because Iran is rather a large country and they, will ha they, they might have fueling problems over Iranian space, airspace. Uh, but it really does not matter whether it is an Israeli attack on Iran or an American attack on Iran. Uh, Iranian perceptions 
uh, of such an attack would be an American attack, even if the Israelis pursue um, uh, uh, such a program. Um, I think then uh, there is a high possibility that Iraq uh, will be the landscape of confrontation between Iran and the United States. Um, I can say with some certainty that uh, because of a long borderline between Iran and Iraq, and because uh, of, of um, the security threats from Saddam Hussein era on Iran in the last two decades, uh, perhaps among the neighboring countries of Iraq, no country has such command over the Iraqi security, religious, political uh, landscape as Iran. Iran is very powerful inside Iraq. As far as I know, Iran has not become operational inside Iraq, but it is an observant of Iraqi politics and how things are proceeding there. Uh, but I think if there, is a, if there is a military strike on Iran uh, uh, by the U.S., then Iraq is going to turn into the landscape of confrontation between the two countries. And Afghanistan, of course, Persian Gulf, Lebanon, and other issues um, might also be activated by Iran. Uh, and uh, that, will lead, that will lead to, the, uh, uh, to a militarization of Iranian politics. Um, uh, that will lead, um, actually, to the consolidation of uh, uh, the uh, right-wing politics in Iran. <clears throat> and um, uh, that will uh, probably um, uh, cause many problems for the Iranian civil society movement, uh, or I won't say democratic movement, that's too strong, but a liberal movement inside Iran, because uh, I do distinguish between liberalization and democratization in the Middle East. I don't, I think, <clears throat> I think, um, um, uh, an objective of pursuing democracy in the Middle East um, with the current uh, culture and with the current economic systems in the Middle East, where the governments control more than 90% of the economies, uh, is nothing but an illusion. <clears throat> uh, economies must change uh, so that there could be some space between the state and the society so that uh, people uh, can organize and uh, be able to uh, develop competitive politics so that there will be some space between the two sides. There is another scenario, the last and third one, is that there will be a temporary solution uh, on the uh, nuclear crisis between Iran and the U.S., Iran and the West, uh, and that uh, Iran will agree to an extended suspic uh, suspicion of its... Um, um, suspension of its um, nuclear activities in return for uh, economic, technical uh, uh, benefits. Uh, there has been some talk about that in the last two years between Iran and the Europeans, but that has basically been on paper, and um, uh, we have not seen um, uh, actual real policies that can translate into uh, um, economic benefits or technical benefits for Iran. 
<clears throat> but no matter which scenario is going to um, emerge <clears throat> in the next months or so, I think the bottom line is really politics. Uh, how politics um, evolve in the U.S., uh, between the U.S. and Israel and the Europeans on the one side and inside Iran on the other side. Now, the current Iranian government uh, is much closer to the core leadership of Iran, which makes um, some opportunities uh, that uh, because of that um, trust within Iran among the leadership, that there could be some kind of a package deal between Iran and the West. Um, I can draw a parallel here, uh, what Richard Nixon did in the early 1970s. As an anti-communist American president, uh, he was able to uh, come to terms with the Chinese communists. Uh, no one could question anti-communist credentials of Richard Nixon. Uh, so, uh, perhaps the current government in Iran, because it has right-leaning um, uh, political orientation and it's very close to the top leadership, there is a possibility that if they feel that they're reaching a, a serious crisis between Iran and the United States, they will compromise and they will try to come to terms, um, uh, especially with the United States, but through the IAEA and the European countries. Let, let me leave it there and look for look forward to the discussion. As you like. Yeah. Professor Sarah Galam has agreed to answer questions. Why don't I take them and then you feel Please. Uh, right? um, I was wondering, since the MPT is being used to prevent not only nuclear weapons for non-nuclear countries, but also peaceful civilian why does Iran not feel that it has the sovereign right to defend itself in any manner it so chooses, and along with other non-nuclear countries, move to scrap the MPT, which is unfair to non-nuclear countries? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if there is, a, um, there is enough countries that would join Iran uh, to uh, pursue such an objective. Um, um, you know, Brazil, South Korea, uh, and a few other developing countries have um, evolving nuclear programs. But all of them um, are countries that are considered friends, they are trusted, um, and uh, there are no uh, problems uh, for the IAEA or the Westerners in general to uh, agree to their nuclear program. So I, I, I think... Um, Iran would not be able to um, mobilize uh, other countries uh, to be able to pursue that. I, I, I doubt that uh, seriously, yeah. Is there any sentiment in Iran to link Israeli denuclearization to Iranian moderation in the nuclear program? That has been uh, the case all along. From, um, I think, the early 1990s, the official Iranian foreign policy has been uh, a free nuclear zone in the Middle East. Uh, and they have actually argued that, you know, the fact that Israel has about 200 nuclear warheads and um, 
uh, if they pursue that policy, then uh, Iran is also willing to give up its nuclear program. Yes, that has been an official policy of Iran at the Middle Eastern level. I think the Egyptians also are pursuing that. And uh, some of the other countries, um, like Saudi Arabia, has indicated uh, their support for such a uh, policy. Yeah. Yes, uh, you focused on the, the trust deficit between, the, between Iran and the Western Europe and the United States. But I don't know if you have heard what did yesterday or day before yesterday. Hosni Mubarak gave an interview to the Al-Arabiya newspaper. There is that sort of deficit of trust among the Arabs with Iran too. They are also very nervous about the situation in Iran. So how is that going to play now? It's not only only one or two circles that's around. Mm-hmm. The Gulf Arab, especially Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, Kuwait, Bahrain, and Egypt. So there yeah. is also a deficit of trust there. Um, uh, I think if you if you read Iranian history, uh, you know we go back to um, maybe 50, 60 years ago, and even further than that. Um, I think Iran has a fundamental problem with all of its neighbors. None of Iran's neighbors, and this is even during the Shah's period. None of Iran's neighbors are interested in the development of Iran, whether in the south or the north. And, uh, and I think, uh, ironically, and uh, the only country that has a genuine strategic, geopolitical, and geoeconomic interest uh, for Iran to develop uh, as a country, technically, technologically and socially, is the United States. Um, of course, there are lots of problems between the two sides, but, if, but American larger interests in the Middle East and Central Asia dictate a very powerful Iran. Because if Iran is powerful, of course, as a friendly Iran, uh, if a friendly Iran is powerful, then that could uh, serve... Uh, as a counterforce to the Russians in Central Asia and the Caucasus. And Iran can also be a country that can stabilize the Persian Gulf region, uh, that can um, uh, facilitate you know, uh, the sale of oil to the rest of the world as, a, as an important energy country. Some 80% uh, of all uh, energy resources in the world is within Iran's um, first and second national security domain in the north and in the south. So Iran is a very important strategic country. And from that perspective, I'm arguing that the United States is really the only country that has a strategic interest for Iran to develop. So this is not really new. Whether Iran wants to become nuclear or it wants to become a technologically powerful country or it wants to have a democratic movement, you will always hear from Iran's neighbors that we feel threatened. Um, so that's not really new. Uh, I think uh, it's been there all along. And, uh, and actually, no matter who rules Iran, and no matter what the orientation of the government in Iran is, uh, I believe, and I have written this in Farsi and in English, 
the only way for Iran to guarantee its national security and to make sure that it develops economically uh, is a linkage with the Western world. That is a precedent that Iran has had in the past and it can have in the future too. You know, to, to speak this about... Yeah. Um, my focus in my presentation was the nuclear program. Yeah. 
and um, and the uh, the dilemmas in the nuclear program. Uh, of course, uh, we can talk about domestic politics in Iran. We can talk about the nature of the uh, uh, the polity in Iran and uh, what has happened over the last two decades. I think those are issues that may be related to this issue, but but as an academic, I do have a focus. And uh, in half an hour, I just wanted to focus on the nuclear issue. Um, I know that um, Iran has, as far as being a signature... Iran. Iran, yeah. Sorry, as far as being a signature... Iran is the name of a yogurt... Yeah. <laughs> so if you want, yeah. As far as being a signature to the NPT, um, Iran, Iran, Iran um, has a right to a, a fuel or a complete fuel cycle as far as milling, enrichment, uh, reprocess, burning, everything. And I know that um, Iran has abundant um, uranium uh, ores Deposits. in the country, either confirmed or unconfirmed. And when you say technical necessities, um, as far as a complete fuel cycle, what is couldn't be included in these necessities? You know that the IAEA has been talking about maybe that they have ne- uh, technical sus- necessities beyond what is needed. But really, if they have uh, uranium ores, they have the right to enrich them, to <coughs> mine them, to mill them, to do everything. Yeah, from a technical point of view, um, what I know is that Iran has reached uh, a stage of uh, self-sufficiency. Um, Iranian universities, especially in the technical areas, are very uh, proficient and professional. Um, and um, Iran does not really need any expertise from the outside world. So it's a question of time for Iran to be able to um, complete uh, the nuclear program that it's seeking. Uh, Like you say, Iran does have the uranium deposits. It does have the technical expertise, and it does have the the economic will to pursue the program. These are not the problems. Uh, The problem is, as I said, it's it's, it's the politics of pursuing nuclear program. Uh, Iranian foreign policy uh, that tends to be very rhetorical. Uh, so there are no technical problems. And the IAEA has actually said uh, that because Iran is so self-sufficient, because Iran does not need external assistance, that kind of uh, uh, creates many uh, suspicions that uh, Iran uh, might even pursue the nuclear weapons program a country that we do not know much about its political system and the way it makes its national security decisions. Yeah. Uh, hello, Dr. Sayyid Thank you for uh, coming here and uh, talking to us. I had a general question about Iran's relationship with China and uh, Russia. Uh, as many people may know, uh, China and Russia have been rather defending Iran, especially within the Security Council because of their uh, veto power uh, and because of the political, commercial, energy connection that they have with Iran. Now, uh, how far do you see this relationship going? Because uh, both uh, China and Russia also want to, I'm sure, want to maintain the relationship uh, with the Western countries, especially with the United States. Mm-hmm. And, uh, but they also have some interests in uh, Iran. 
So how far do you see this relationship going? And uh, how yeah. strong of a bond do you believe this is? Yeah. Um, we need to distinguish between China and Russia. Uh, Iran is not a strategic partner of China. Um, although China is uh, uh, looking for um, strategic partners in its energy resources, uh, and it's looking for countries that might have frictions with the United States so that they can secure and guarantee uh, sustained uh, exports to China. Iran, I, I think they import 13% of their oil from Iran, which can easily be uh, substituted uh, in the markets. And uh, Saudis, I think they are 14% uh, of the uh, imports of China. Um, Chinese um, trade with Iran beyond oil is very nil. Iranian uh, South Korean trade uh, is like five times Iranian-Chinese trade. So uh, Iran for Chinese foreign policy is, a, is more of a political asset or a trade-off kind of uh, situation vis-a-vis uh, -vis the United States at the, at the UN Security Council. So I think um, as long as they can come to terms and, uh, and kind of engage in bargaining with the United States uh, on their mutual issues and problems that they might have. I don't, um, uh, I don't believe that China is going to view Iran strategically or is going to come to Iran's help at any moment. And as we have seen in the last two years, uh, the Chinese have agreed at the last moment um, uh, to go along with American and European proposals. And the saying in Iran is that uh, the Chinese will always sell out uh, Iran and, and that we cannot really rely on the Chinese. Now, Russia, uh, yeah, the Russians, of course, um, sell weapons to Iran and um, they have earned uh, some billions in this nuclear deal with Iran over the years. Uh, Iran is important to Russia from a, a geostrategic perspective. <clears throat> it's interesting, if you study Russian-Iranian relations in the last two centuries, there has always been a persistent Russian interest in Iran. Make sure the Europeans and the Americans are not uh, uh, installed in Iran. They do not have a strategic presence in Iran. So it doesn't matter if it's the Soviet Union or the Russian Federation, there is a Russian interest to make sure that Iran uh, stays away from the United States now or in the 19th century from Britain. Um, so I think, uh, again, as we have seen Russian behavior in the nuclear negotiations, Russians, just like the Chinese, have agreed uh, ultimately with American uh, and European proposals. They have made modifications of the proposals uh, that have been that have come forth. But uh, and for example, um, the U.S. wanted to put and the Europeans two weeks for Iran to decide to completely suspend its uh, uranium enrichment program. The Chinese and the Russians said, "Let's make it four weeks." And they wanted to have some maneuvering room. They agree in principle with the West, I think, today. Maybe that was not the case two years ago, 
But the case today is that uh, both the Chinese and the Russians uh, are in principle agreement with the nature of the, uh, of the program in Iran. And I think the Russians uh, agree with the Europeans uh, and the Americans that um, this program in Iran is beyond civilian program. So there is that principle agreement. Um, but, the, but in future negotiations between those two countries and, uh, and the West, Russians are going to be much more difficult to convince for a number of um, baskets of sanctions vis-à-vis -vis Iran than the, uh, than the Chinese. Uh, the Chinese uh, might cave in very rapidly and quickly given their very important strategic relations with the United States. The Russians, of course, are going into a different turn in their foreign policy. They might use Iran uh, from time to time to uh, draw benefits in their relations especially from the United States and to some degree from the British. If Iran at any point wants to normalize its relations with the United States um, and to win uh, American support for its nuclear program, politically speaking, Iran has to change its orientation towards the Arab-Israeli conflict. That is the root of the problem between Iran and the United States. Um, if there is a question of weapons of mass destruction vis-à-vis -vis Iran, if uh, the U.S. raises uh, concerns about Iranian nuclear program, um, they all converge on the problem uh, that Iran has uh, with Israel. Um, if Iran at some point agrees to the two-state solution that even the Arab League agreed in 2002 in Beirut. It's called the Beirut Declaration, where the Arab world, the Arab League, all the Arab countries agreed that if Israel returns to the 1967 borders and they agree to the right of uh, return of the refugees, Palestinian refugees, to the, um, uh, to the West Bank and Gaza, 
then they are willing to accept and agree to the sovereignty and uh, independence of the state of Israel. Now, if Iran actually the only country uh, that has not made any indications to that regard, I think that is the root of the problem. If Iran agrees to that uh, kind of a change, then the normalization process will begin. No American president uh, will be able to proceed with normalization or change of attitude towards Iran unless Iran has a change in its Israeli policy. So politically speaking, in terms of Iranian foreign policy, that, that, that's how Iran uh, should move forward. <clears throat> um, as of now, perhaps, uh, uh, as things stand today, um, you know, it's very clear that Iran um, militarily cannot confront the United States. But Iran has great capacity for intimidation and disturbance, um, both um, within its border lines and beyond. So I think that's, um, that's the concern of most uh, Americans. Uh, I'm talking about American officials. That um, what will be Iranian reaction and how will a military attack on Iran uh, be received within Iran and how will that change politics inside Iran? Um, I think uh, one of the key decisions for the United States government is the question of time frame because a lot of people are waiting for big changes in Iran, changes overnight that Iran is going to change, the revolutionaries are going to, uh, um, um, the first generation is going to turn into the second generation. Iran will be a moderate country. Iran will be an evolving country and the country that will be, that will join the forces at the regional level and so on. Will that happen five years from now, 10 years from now, or 15 years from now? And how will, how would an American military strike disturb that, uh, that objective of the U.S. government? I think that's so central and crucial to the processes of decision-making in this country. Um, because that's so uncertain, how Iran is going to change in the next years or decade or whatever. Um, that's why you hear, even today, I think, or yesterday, uh, uh, American military uh, officials have said that there are so many uncertainties in the aftermath of a military strike that we don't know how we're going to deal with. Therefore, we should be cautious about a, such a proposal. Um, Iran um, can, as I said, can be a force of disturbance and intimidation in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in the Persian Gulf, um, I've heard from energy experts in this country that if there is a military strike on Iran, there is a possibility that the price of oil will reach as much as $130 a barrel in a matter of few days uh, because Iran has, uh, has, uh, has uh, geopolitical uh, presence in the Persian Gulf and the Strait of Hormuz where some uh, 45% of the flow of oil uh, goes through. And um, if there is a military exchange in the Persian Gulf, 
that can uh, you know that can increase the price of uh, insurance, you know, um, uh, oil exploration, all sorts of uh, psychological reasons that will lead to an economic change in the oil market. So <clears throat> uh, I think those are the elements that Iran has been has been signaling to the West that we do have capacity uh, in the oil market and also at the regional level uh, to um, to uh, counter American military strikes on Iran. If you study the, the Khatami presidency, this is the presidency before this current one, um, uh, Iranian national security uh, policy uh, is not made by the president. Um, the presidency in Iran is basically uh, an office for domestic issues, for economic, educational, social, environmental, whatever. Um, uh, ir- the core issues in Iranian foreign policy and national security, like Iraq, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Turkey, Europe, Israel, Palestinians, uh, the U.S., these are all made uh, by the supreme leader, as uh, the, you know the, the case has been uh, in the Iranian constitution. So um, I think that will, that kind of tradition or precedence will continue. Uh, and the presidency will not have an impact. The presidency will make declarations from time to time, uh, but, uh, but they will not have any policy impact. For example, in 1992, then Iranian President Rafsanjani, you may have heard the name, um, he said openly and publicly that if the Palestinians agree uh, uh, with the Israelis, to a two-state solution, then we will go along with it too. Then uh, the next president, Khatami, said exactly the same thing in 1998. But those were presidents of Iran. Those statements and policy preferences never became state policy because beyond the office of presidency, uh, the Iranian core issues in foreign policy are made by the supreme leader and the military security establishment. Now, the rhetoric uh, you mentioned, um, um, this new president, uh, of course, um, uh, comes from a background of uh, mostly uh, domestic experience, no experience in foreign policy. So um, uh, that's why, uh, without understanding uh, of the international landscape and the consequences of such statements they have been made. Um, I think there have been pressures inside Iran, especially through the Iranian parliament, for the president uh, to be less rhetorical 
and to be careful with the statements that he's making. And the Iranian media too. Iranian center to left media has put a lot of pressure on the president too. Yeah. Um, aside um, from the nature of the Iranian government, uh, I think any people in any country um, would, uh, would be intimidated if their country is attacked, no matter what the government's nature is. So I think uh, an attack on Iran um, uh, would obviously rally the people around the state. Initially, at least, it would. And, um, and for those of you who are familiar with Iranian history, because Iran is such an ancient country, and uh, there is a very strong uh, sense of nationalism and pride. And um, so uh, even the nuclear program for the layman on the street... Is, a, is, an, is an issue of pride and prestige. Uh, since um, uh, Iranians have kind of been demonized and degraded over the last two decades uh, through many crises that they have had, um, uh, any, any program, any idea that can lead to the empowerment of Iran is welcomed by the average person. Uh, somehow Iran is going to return to the mainstream power politics of the region. Iran is going to be a member of an exclusive nuclear club. Um, you know, the average person does not know the technicalities of the nuclear program, but they are told that this is going to um, help our country to become more powerful, economically viable, and we're going to be diversifying in energy resources and so on. So, <clears throat> psychologically speaking, the nuclear program is a subjective source of satisfaction for the average person. And, and I think, uh, clearly, I'm just trying to be an observant and, um, and uh, uh, be a good student of Jim Rosenau in observations. As I observe the Iranian society, I think the average person would be uh, very much disturbed by a military attack. And uh, that, can, uh, that can lead to a lot of political and social changes inside Iran. Uh, the average person in Iran is very cosmopolitan, and actually the orientation is more towards the Western world at the societal level. So that could, that could be jeopardized in the aftermath of a military operation. I guess I'm wondering what accounts for 
the resistance in Iran to recognizing Israel, especially if the Palestinians are willing to go along with a two-state solution? I mean, what is it in the discourse, the ideology of the, the, the establishment yeah. that somehow <clears throat> precludes even thinking about that? Sure. Um, uh, I have great interest in cognitive studies and, um, and political psychology, and I try to go into the uh, with my, actually, with my graduate students, we do this a lot. Um, go into inside the mindset of uh, top Iranian elites and try to understand things as they are, as as as, as political scientists. <clears throat> um, uh, I think the mindset is very revolutionary, and uh, and these are people who have not left the country uh, since the revolution for the most part. If they have gone to another country, it's like Syria, Algeria, Pakistan, maybe a few other countries. So there is very little exposure to the, uh, to the global community. Uh, when these people who are in their early 70s, when they were in their 30s and 20s, they were fighting the Shah's regime at that time, in the 1950s and the 40s and the 60s, whatever, 50s on, um, because Israel and the U.S. were associated with the Shah's regime, and uh, I'm just trying to explain as things as, as they are in the mindset, because uh, the U.S. and Israel were, were associated very closely, strategically, with the Shah's regime, uh, therefore, uh, Israel is an obsession in the mindset of the top core uh, clerical leadership. Uh, that's just a scientific statement there. Uh, now, um, they do not distinguish between the two. And because um, uh, they have remained revolutionary over time, um, uh, it is very difficult for them to change that mindset. Now, um, there was a time I remember when I finished my studies here and I went back to Iran in the, in the early 1990s, it was almost difficult to speak of the issue of normalization between Iran and the U.S. That has changed. Today, in classroom situation, in media discussions, in university roundtables, you can openly promote the normalization between Iran and the United States. That is done throughout the whole country. Even members of parliament, even Perhaps some members of government have talked about the necessity of this normalization. But Israel is the only problem uh, that remains as even at the, at the level of discussion inside Iran. Now, <clears throat> Iranians, uh, uh, in, Iran, in, in the Iranian culture, ambiguity is a virtue. And it's very deep. It goes back to Iranian poetry 3,000 years ago. So people talk about Israel, but in an extremely ambiguous way. Uh, so that if you use political science jargon, um, uh, people will understand what you're talking about. Uh, but it may not be clear to those um, uh, outside of the field. So... Um, as of today, I really don't see any opportunities for any change on that question. Um, I think the Khatami presidency tried, to some degree, in its foreign policy, to look at Israel differently, but it never became a state policy. And um, 
Uh, but I think uh, perhaps if in the 1990s, I should make that distinction, Israel was an ideological issue for the top leadership, today it's more or less a political issue, not an ideological issue. It is a bargaining chip. You know, why should Iran, from their perspective, give up the leverage that it has with the Palestinian groups? Because if we're going to normalize at some point with the Americans, we need to have uh, strong leverage in our negotiations. Why Iran today is pushing to negotiate with the U.S. in Iraq? Because Iraq is the strongest leverage point that Iran has. Uh, in all of the in all of its bargaining chips at the regional level, <clears throat> so so uh, that is I, I don't think it's going to change um, uh, uh, quickly. The discourse on Israel is not going to change, um, in, in, at least within the circles, within the political and elite circles in the country. Um, now, um, but. But we, we can hope for some uh, uh, ambiguous language and vocabulary in Iranian foreign policy alluding to some uh, changes in its Palestinian-Israeli conflict. I should add that might be of interest to you. Uh, I don't know if anybody followed this. The leader of Hamas, somebody by the name of Mash'al, he was in Iran a month and a half ago. I read the text of his uh, presentation and Q&A in Tehran University. It was fascinating. He said that uh, a student from Tehran University got up and asked, what will you do as Hamas if the Americans attack Iran? He said, we will pray for you. Which was, um, which, um, uh, which was uh, an amazing statement by a group that in this country is considered uh, as uh, an ally of Iran among the Palestinians. And then he was asked, now that you, are, you have won the uh, parliamentary elections, what is, your, uh, what is your model of governance? He said, Turkey because we will include all factions, uh, uh, political factions in our society. So, <clears throat> and I don't know if um, uh, my audience uh, is aware of not, uh, Saudi Arabia helps Hamas much more than Iran. Uh, but because their assistance to Hamas is, a, uh, is of an educational, social, health uh, nature, uh, it really doesn't make the headlines. Uh, Iranian uh, assistance is more of a political uh, and um, ideological nature, and it has a lot of resonance. So I'm, I'm not very hopeful about a change of discourse or even a change of policy regarding Israel in Iran. That's very clear, yeah. It's very clear. They have very good relationship with Israel and they have historical Yeah. Iran today has the second largest Jewish community in the Middle East after Israel. But those in charge of 
these regimes, they are anti-Semitic. So we have to make this connect between Iranian uh, and the, the people in China. Just one more question, and I know Mr. Sargon has to catch a plane, so he's very grateful for it. You haven't had a chance. I was uh, wondering, because you said the population of the younger generation is so large, when they become in charge 40, 30 years from now, what values in education are they bringing with them? Um, In 20 years from now, um, of course, uh, we're taught not to predict, but um, my my take will would be that Iran will be a very different country, uh, very different country in 20 years from now. Um, and the reason for that, and I'm using my policy education, um, Iran is fundamentally uh, Iranian policies, domestic or foreign, I think are fundamentally dictated by its geopolitics. That's been the case in history. Because of its geopolitical beauty and its um, um, its kind of um, imperial presence at the regional level, um, Iran has no choice uh, but to uh, develop economically and... Uh, and to um, interact actually with great powers. If you read Iranian history, Iran has always dealt with the great powers of its time, all the time, uh, because of its geopolitics. And now energy is another element uh, that is so crucial. Um, It's going to be a large, um, uh, it's going to be a, a country with a large population, a very talented population, um, Iranian educational system is uh, very efficient. It produces um, high-quality graduates in all fields. And uh, there is great potential for Iran to become a regional power. Problem is that how do you, how do you um, kind of pursue national sovereignty at the same time you pursue economic development? You can have the two. For example, Turkey has been more or less successful. Uh, Malaysia has been successful. Um, But uh, sovereignty in the Iranian psyche is a very important issue. And and I think the new generation that you touched upon, um, they are also sensitive, but I think they are far more global. Um, If you... If you visit Iran and talk to an average teenager in Iran, you would feel you're talking to an average teenager in the United States. Um, They're on the web all the time, and uh, most of them speak proper English. And uh, they're into sports. Uh, They know a lot about the uh, world beyond them. And they're very cosmopolitan. And the good thing, the new generation is apolitical. Uh, It has very little interest in politics. Um, so, um, and nationalism is going, growing very rapidly in Iran. So, I think in a few decades, Iran will be a completely different country. Yeah, well, that's when we'll be retired then, yeah. I want to thank you for taking time. Thank you so much.
It's rare for Americans to get to hear and talk to an Iranian, and I really appreciate uh, Mahmoud Sayal Ghalam's willingness to put a Columbus on a very brief trip to the United States. But it's very good to have you back. Thank, Thank you. you so much. Well, I want to...